Many of you may have seen or be familiar with uh, the movie God's Not Dead. This is a movie about a Christian student at a secular university and the atheistic professor, philosophy professor, challenges anyone in the class to give a defense for the existence of God. And uh, this young student uh, gives a defense, uh, three sessions I think it is, in which he's able to uh, show or have time to explain the existence of God. And uh, the movie is basically the story of his journey to do that. Now, there's many great things about this movie, but one of the complaints that I heard, and to be honest, I felt myself, was that it was just a little too neat and clean. What I mean by that is that in the classroom where this student is presenting these arguments for the existence of God, after just three sessions, pretty much the whole class votes that God must exist now uh, after these three presentations. And the atheist professor, uh, he comes to faith in sort of this really kind of neat and clean way right, right before he dies. And so it's a fictional account And there's some really great things about it, but something about it didn't quite resonate with me and I think with some others, partly because of just how neat and clean the sort of whole story was made out to be. Now compare that with a real life story, a true story that I heard just last week. Last week I was gone at a pastor's group. Uh, We've got a group of about 15 of us that get together in Chicago Uh, every year for sort of learning and studying and prayer and encouragement. And every year our group invites a couple of uh, people to come and and join with us in the conversations. And one of the people that came this year is a man named Mike Murray. Uh, Mike Murray is on staff with the Templeton Foundation. Uh, But before that, he spent 30 years as a philosophy professor at Franklin and Marshall College. Now, when we were gathered together and kind of sharing with one another sort of our stories, the question came up, how did you keep your faith in the midst of secular academic environments which were hostile to Christianity? And we were all kind of sharing our stories, and Mike shared his story. And his story was that he went to Franklin and Marshall as an undergraduate. Uh, That's not a Christian university. He'd only been a Christian for just uh, a couple of years, maybe one or two years. And he started telling his story, and I said, well, that sounds like God's not dead. Uh, And he said, well, it was similar, but mine's a real story, and it's different. And he told the story. And the story was there was a professor, an atheistic professor. And by the way, the movie's not based on his story at all. Uh, But there was an atheist professor of philosophy who was actively trying to convince the students in his class uh, that God didn't exist. And the professor issued a challenge that if any student wanted to argue for the existence of God, that philosophy professor would give the student a whole session uh, that they could make their presentation, and the philosophy professor agreed not to make any comments or participate in the discussion at all, just simply let the student uh, have the opportunity. Well, Mike was maybe a freshman or sophomore at the time, and he wasn't in that class, but one of his friends knew that uh, he was a Christian and asked him if he would be willing to take up that challenge. Now, having had only one semester of college philosophy, uh, Mike was pretty scared to do this, but he said he prayed, and he really felt the Lord leading him to do this. 
Now, he was nervous because he knew this could really jeopardize his standing in the department uh, by being willing to do this, but he wanted to be, he wanted to be obedient and he wanted to uh, represent the Lord well. So he said he prayed like crazy and he studied and prepared and he got ready to present uh, the one lecture that he was given. And he said when he went there, he was really, really nervous. He was made more nervous by the fact that other faculty had heard that this was happening and they decided to attend. And they were not under the same gag order and so they asked questions during the presentation. He said it was really intimidating, but at the end he felt like God was with him and he, he would have said, I think in his own words, it went reasonably well. Well, when he got done, all of the students, of course, wanted to gather around the professor and say, well, were you convinced? And the professor's response was, not yet. Well, Mike, as he tells the story, he went off and uh, went and did a PhD in philosophy at the University of Notre Dame and was invited back to that same college, Franklin and Marshall College, to be a faculty member in the same department with that atheistic professor. And uh, they were friends, and so by this point, the professor was now inviting Mike every semester to give one lecture to his sections on the existence of God. And Mike said every year for 20, 30-some years, he would give a lecture on the philosophical arguments for the existence of God, to talk about the existence of God from a philosophical point of view. When I asked him sort of how did it go, he said, well, you know, there were some great things that happened. Over those 30 years, he told the story about one person who was a faculty member who had walked away from the Lord a long time ago. Uh, He said, uh, I had the joy of seeing him come back to faith uh, after many, many years. Uh, And he's like, that was a really great, encouraging thing. I said, well, what about the atheist professor? And Mike said, well, that one didn't turn out so well. I was like, as far as I know, he, he passed away without ever having accepted Christ as his Savior. That for 30 years he heard the same talk about the existence of God, uh, but he never actually put his faith in Jesus. Now, I resonated with Mike's story probably more than I did with the movie for a couple of reasons. One, it was true. (laughs) It's a true story. And in fact, when I asked him, would it be okay if I shared this with my congregation, he said, yeah, it's fine. It's like if they want more details, it's actually written up in a book, part of it's written up in a book called God and the Philosophers that Oxford University Press Uh, put out a few years ago. It's got a Michael Murray story plus a number of philosophers uh, teaching at high-level academic institutions who are believers in Jesus. And it's sort of their story as to why they continue to believe in Jesus uh, in the midst of the environments in which they're at. But the other reason why his story really resonated with me is that it wasn't neat and clean. It was messy. There were some things about it that were really great, And there were some things about it that you were like, boy, if I was writing the story, I would have wanted it to turn out differently. But the reason it resonated with me is that life is often pretty messy. One of the reasons why I sometimes think Christian movies don't always connect with me is because they seem to think that it's only God is only active if everything is neat and clean and tidy. But that's not the case. Much of life is messy. Much of life has twists and turns that we're not expecting. Much of life ends up in ways that we never dreamed for it to end up. Much of life has hardships and suffering and sin and problems in a way that the only way to describe it at the end is that it's messy. 
Well, this morning we want to talk about the messiness of life and God's presence in and amidst the messiness of life. So please take a Bible and turn to the book of Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. It's page 175 in the Bibles the church provides. Joshua chapter 9. While you're turning, let me kind of explain what I mean when I use the word messy because it's not a perfect word. I'm trying to say when I talk about the messiness of life is that any time sin is present in life, the result is messiness. Now, I mean a whole range of things by that. I mean some things that you and I might term a little more minor, such as when our pride keeps us from apologizing to somebody that we should apologize for uh, to, and that introduces some tension or conflict. That's part of the messiness of life. But that's at sort of one end, which we might consider a little more minor. I'm also using the word messy to account for the things that we're going to say are really, really major. Things that can be are, are an abomination to God. Things like murder or uh, sexual trafficking or abuse or the kinds of things that really, they do create a mess, but it's a much bigger mess and it's a much worse mess. But I needed a word that kind of covered all of the messiness of life. And so when I use the word messy, I understand that there are some things in which they're more minor and some things that are seemingly all-consuming. But under that umbrella, I'm talking about any time that sin is present, whether in really major ways or more minor ways, and it causes life to have a darkness and a confusion and a suffering and a difficulty associated with it. With that in mind, let's look at the story in Joshua chapter 9. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about these things, the kings in the hill country in the western foothills and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they resorted to a ruse. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins, cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, We have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Okay, that's the introduction of the story. Joshua chapter 9, Gibeonites, who are a people that live near where the Israelites are, come and they say, hey, make a treaty with us. The rest of the story, as Joshua 9 presents it, has Joshua say to them, well, how do we know that you don't live near us? And the Gibeonites reply, look at our shoes. They're worn out. Look at our clothes. They're old. Look at our bread. It's moldy. If we lived near you, we would have fresh bread and we would have clean sandals and we would have nice clothes. We must have traveled from far away for our clothes to look like this. And it says the Israelites examined the evidence. They looked at the bread and they looked at the sandals and they looked at the clothes. But they never actually asked God. 
And so they determine, yeah, they must be from long or far away. And so Joshua and the elders decide to make a treaty with them, meaning they make a covenant in which they promise they're going to be allies. They're sort of united together. Neither one will attack each other. They're both sort of on the same side. Well, three days after they make that treaty, the Israelites find out the Gibeonites are not from far away. They actually are their neighbors. And the children of Israel begin to grumble and complain against the leaders of Israel. They're like, look, what have you done? That was supposed to be land we were supposed to conquer, that we were supposed to get. Now we have the treaty with them. Well, we still have to attack them. And Joshua and the elders say, no. We made a mistake, but we made a covenant. We can't break the covenant that we've made with them. And we pick up the story in verse 22. Then Joshua summoned the Gibeonites and said, Why did you deceive us by saying, We live a long way from you, while actually you live near us? You are now under a curse. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, Your servants were clearly told how the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to wipe out all its inhabitants from before you. So we feared for our lives because of you, and that is why we did this. We are now in your hands. Do to us whatever seems good and right to you. So Joshua saved them from the Israelites, and they did not kill them. That day he made the Gibeonites woodcutters and water carriers for the assembly, to provide for the needs of the altar of the Lord at the place the Lord would choose. And that is what they are to this day. Now the Gibeonites' story is a messy story. It's messy, and its messiness can be seen in comparison to the relatively clean story of Rahab. Rahab is the woman who, when presented with these two spies from the children of Israel, throws herself on the mercy of God and wholeheartedly embraces God and his people. And as a result, she is welcomed into the children of Israel as an equal. She's welcomed in to be part of the children of Israel. The messiness of the Gibeonite story can also be seen in contrast to the cleanness of the story of those who simply reject God. The nations or the tribes at the beginning of the chapter who decide they're going to attack Joshua. Theirs too is a clean story. They've cleanly rejected. Rahab cleanly accepts. They cleanly reject. Gibeon is somewhere in the middle. On one hand, they clearly want to be part of the people of God. Joshua chapter 11 actually affirms the Gibeonites' desire to make a treaty. It says Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. Except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace with the Israelites who took them all in battle. And the Gibeonites are commended because they wanted peace. They wanted to be part of the children of Israel. They wanted to make a treaty. That's a good thing. On the other hand, it's messy because they lie about it. They get in by resorting to a ruse. And God hates deception. God hates lying. And as a result, when they come in, they don't come in like Rahab does as equals. They come in under a curse from Joshua to be water carriers and woodcutters 
servants for Israel. And so we have here a messy story. Now, some of us today may be familiar with messy stories. Maybe how you came to faith was messy. You know, sometimes there's really clean testimonies. People hear about Jesus' love for them and they are convicted of their sins and they fall in love with God and they repent and they come into the kingdom and they begin obeying immediately and their testimony seems really clean. But maybe you have a messier testimony. Maybe you came to faith because you were scared of going to hell or because you thought your parents wanted you to. Or because the girl you had fallen in love with was a Christian and wouldn't marry you unless you became a Christian. Or maybe everybody around you was putting pressure on you to become a Christian and maybe that's the reason you'd... Maybe you don't even know what the reason was. And you look back and say, my coming to faith was a little bit messier than some other people's. Maybe there's a messiness in your life that you might have grown up in a seemingly strong Christian family who everybody in the church held in high regards. But what you experienced at home, there was a lot of darkness and a lot of sin and a lot of pain and life felt messier. Maybe you have a job that you have right now and you love it and you feel like God has given it to you but you know in the back of your head you got it because you lied on your resume or because you lied in an interview and it feels a little messier than you wish it would. Maybe you're in a relationship right now and you weren't honest or haven't been honest about the stuff from your past that you really should make known and you've tried to keep that hidden so that nobody else knows about those things and it feels like there's a messiness in the relationship. Maybe you've been on a journey of faith and along the way you bailed out because it was just too hard or too difficult. What are we supposed to do with the messiness of life? We get what happens when everything is neat and clean. We get what happens when everything, God shows up and everything works out smoothly and miraculously and wonderfully. But for most of us, We live in the messiness of life. And there's some aspect of our life in which we look at it, we say, because of sin, whether the sins we've committed or sins others have done to us, there's just no other way to describe it except messy. What are we to make of that? Well, what happened with the Gibeonites? Well, on one hand... Because they lie, they come in cursed by Joshua. That's kind of messy. But notice what they're cursed to do. To be woodcutters and water carriers for the house of God. They're actually going to work in worship. They're going to actually be near to where God is most fully present in Israel. They're going to work at the tabernacle. That's kind of cool. So cool is it that after some time, we're told in 1 Chronicles, the tabernacle ends up located in Gibeon. That's pretty great. 
And when God appears to Solomon and gives him wisdom, he does it at Gibeon. So yes, they're under a curse. That's messy. Yes, they're servants. That's messy. But man, God works that together and somehow it turns into something good. Now it says here that they were accepted. The treaty was made between Israel and Gibeon. That's good. On the other hand, all of the other people in Canaan find out that Gibeon has made this treaty and they decide to attack them. That's messy. But in Joshua chapter 10, Joshua and the Israelites go to protect the Gibeonites. And God actually causes the sun to stand still in the sky to protect the Gibeonites. That's pretty cool. God is fighting for these people who lied to get in. Well, fast forward a few, uh, a few hundred years. King Saul comes on the scene. Saul, in a fit of rage, decides he's going to purge Israel from everybody who's not, in his mind, a true Israelite, and he begins to persecute the Gibeonites. He thinks, I'm going to do what Joshua should have done in the first place, which is get rid of them. And so the Gibeonites experience racism and persecution. That's messy. But on the other hand, when David comes along, God says to David, hey, Israel sinned in persecuting the Gibeonites. You need to make reparations for it. And so David does. And we see that God is defending the Gibeonites. That's pretty cool. And as we watch their story, there are lots of twists and turns. But the last time the Gibeonites are mentioned in the Old Testament is in the book of Nehemiah. They've gone into exile with the Israelites. They've come back, and the book of Nehemiah tells us that they are working side by side, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And the last mention of the Gibeonites is that they are now fully incorporated into the people of God. That they're fully a part of what God's doing. And so we look at this messy story, and there are twists and turns, and there are things we would not have wished for them. But at the end, we see God's been at work. You see, we think that God is only at work when things are neat and clean. But I'd like to argue that I think God is at least as glorified, if not more glorified, when things are messy. Because when God gets involved when there's sin, his grace and his power and his love and his faithfulness shine through in new and brighter ways. The fact that the Gibeonites got in by lying, not a good thing. But they still got in and God continued to work in and through their story until they end up fully integrated into the people of God. Yes, there were twists and turns that they experienced that Rahab didn't because of the way she came in. But please don't think God wasn't at work. And it's not only the Gibeonites who've got a messy story. Israel themselves have a messy story, don't they? I mean, Jacob, their forefather, did the same thing. He lied to his brother Esau to get the blessing from God. God was going to give him the blessing anyway. 
Jacob got impatient, did it for himself, lied, and that created a huge rift between him and his brother Esau. God worked in and through Jacob's lie, never condoning it, but worked in and through Jacob's lie to actually bless Jacob. But it took years and years to work through the messiness between Jacob and Esau because of the sin Jacob introduced. That's a messy story, but God was still at work. And it's not like the messiness went away once Jesus showed up. Paul tells us in Philippians that at his time, there were preachers who were preaching Jesus, not out of pure motives, but out of selfish ambition. God hates selfish ambition. But there were preachers at that time who were proclaiming the gospel because of the attention it brought to them. That's messy. But Paul says, hey, but Christ is still being preached. God can still work in the messiness. People can still come to faith. And so Paul says, I'm rejoicing. Not in the fact that people have selfish ambitions, but in the fact that God is always at work, even in the messiness of life. And that when someone comes to faith, when a preacher is preaching out of selfish ambition, who could possibly get credit for that except God? And it's not like the messiness of life ceased after the New Testament was over. Take the issue of slavery here in this country. Europeans and North Americans enslaved people from Africa. That's an abomination to the Lord. Some of, the, some of those slave owners forced Christianity upon their slaves as a way of justifying what they were doing. Also an abomination to the Lord. Some of those slaves became Christians because they thought it was a way to win favor with their masters. That's a messy, messy story. But you know what? God's been at work in that story. And here today we have a beautiful thing. Black and white worshiping God together. That doesn't condone any of that. But it certainly glorifies a God who can work amidst sin and destruction to bring about something beautiful, reconciliation and peace and friendship and brotherhood. And it doesn't mean that there's not still more to go and it doesn't mean that there's not messiness. But the point is, I'm saying, I think God is at least as glorified, if not more glorified, when he brings good out of bad than he is when everything is clean and neat and tidy. And just our individual church, we've got messiness in our story too. In our history, there are church splits. There are abuses of leadership in our history. God is at work in the midst of that. This is what he does. He's not just a God of the clean. He's a God of the messy. And he gets in, and when things are messy, he shows his power, his love, his grace, and his mercy. But listen. That doesn't excuse the sin. That doesn't make what the Gibeonites did right. Look, if they would have just embraced God like Rahab did, it would have gone so much better for them. It would have been so much smoother for them. 
God does not condoning lying. God does not condone slavery. God does not condone preaching out of selfish ambition. God does not condone church splits or leadership abuse. God does not condone any of those things. He doesn't condone abuse. He doesn't condone human trafficking. He doesn't condone any of that stuff. But please... Don't make the mistake of thinking that somehow our sin overpowers his ability to act. God is greater than our sin. Whether it's the sins we commit or the sins that are committed, all sin introduces messiness into life. But God is far greater. And he's at work doesn't condone the sin. Please don't hear me saying that. The Gibeonites would have been much better off going the way Rahab went, which was simply to embrace God wholeheartedly. The other thing I don't want us to make a mistake in doing is thinking that because in the messiness it's hard to see God at work or there are twists and turns or the journey is longer that somehow he wasn't at work the whole time. It took a long time for the Gibeonites to get where they're at. It took a long time for them to be incorporated fully into the people of God. But God was at work the entire time. I mean, look right at the very beginning. Verse 23. Look at what Joshua curses them with. You will never be released from service as woodcutters and water carriers for the house of my God. Now, I don't think he knew it at the time, but you know what he just cursed them to? Eternal life. <laughs> Serving in the house of God. Well, God's house is in heaven. And to serve as a woodcutter or a water carrier in the house of the Lord forever and ever means you get to be in the presence of God. The Gibeonites in their sin, got to be closely associated with God. And from the very beginning, I think God made sure that what they were cursed with, he could turn into a blessing. It doesn't mean it wasn't hard. It doesn't mean they loved being servants. It doesn't mean being water carriers and woodcutters is a wonderful thing. It just means the seeds of what God wanted to do for good were being planted at the moment the evil was happening. That's God at work. You see, when things are neat and clean, this is kind of why we want to make movies this way. It's obvious that God's at work. But when they're messy, he is just at work, if not more so. It just can be harder to see. God's always at work. But when things are messy... I think he's at least as glorified, if not more glorified. And if we take the time to see what he's up to, we'll see an amazing God whose grace, power, and love shine brightest in the messiest of situations. Now this morning, I don't want you to just hear the word, and I don't want you just to take my word for it. I want you to hear a story of how God's been at work in a messy situation. Lou DeGraff, uh, would you come? And your brother Peter, would you come with uh, up here on the platform? They're going to share a testimony with us. Uh, and we're going to hear how God's been at work in the messiness of life.
Good morning. My name is Lou DeGraff, and I love and worship the one true God who does the impossible. Nineteen years ago, I stood on this platform and shared my story at a Saturday night service. Since that night, God has continued to work in my life and in the lives of my family, so my story today has a different ending than it did all those years ago. I am the youngest of five. My home growing up was a home filled with laughter, music, and hospitality, but we were also a dysfunctional family, and there was a dark side to our lives. We were part of a very strict religious system, and rules had to be followed. Anger was the underlying emotion in our home. It was unpredictable, explosive, keeping me in chains of terror, and would erupt in the forms of verbal, physical, and emotional abuse. Plus, I was sexually abused. I spent the growing up years of my life in survival mode, trying to stay out of the way of whatever was the threatening enemy of the week. I didn't talk about life at home with any of my friends because I figured everyone lived like that. It was normal. I didn't like the dark side, but didn't know anything different, so I did my best to deal with it. The only part that I spent time thinking about and really wished would stop was the sexual abuse. My perception of God was that he was this big angry thing that lived in the sky and was holding a big stick, always ready to give me a whack if I stepped out of line. The fear was not knowing what the whack would look like. I tried to be perfect, but I always seemed to be in trouble for something. I lived in a constant state of fear and anxiety, and the only time I felt safe was when we had company. All I really knew about Jesus was that he was God's son, he died on a cross, and I had better believe in him or I would go to hell. Around the age of nine or ten, I began asking God to make the bad stuff stop. And bad stuff meant the sexual abuse, except I didn't know there was a term for it. Please make it go away, I would plead, only to have my prayers go unanswered, which made me think I was not saved. After years of this, I ran out of ways and words of asking to be saved, so I thought there must be something very wrong with me, or there must be no God. In my early teen years, with the thought that God must not exist, I didn't worry so much about his big stick and began acting out. My own anger would erupt at my friends, I used filthy language, I used my sense of humor at others' expense, tearing them down in order to build myself up. But interestingly, I was afraid to use God's name disrespectfully. The vision of the big stick ready to whack had not completely gone away. When I was 23, I got married and moved to Michigan. I was ecstatic to leave my life of pain behind and start a new life with my husband. Unbeknownst to me, my baggage moved here with me, and after a while, the monster within began to show its ugly head. With so much anger stuffed inside me, it would spill out here and there, usually over something small and insignificant, causing conflict and confusion in my marriage. I hated myself for acting that way, but at the same time, I felt justified in being angry because I was always right, according to me. God does not force us to deal with stuff in our lives, but he has his way of getting us to look at areas that need attention, especially when it comes to sin and pain and his desire to turn it into good. In 1988, God decided it was time for me to face my pain and let my secret out. 
I told one of my close friends that I had been sexually abused. God used my friend to encourage me to get counseling, and she also invited me to go to Bible study fellowship with her. That year, we studied the book of John, and for the first time in my life, I met Jesus Christ. I learned things about him, like he's kind, he's gentle, he loves me, to the point of going to the cross to give his life for me so that I can spend eternity in heaven. At the time, I thought, this guy cannot be for real. This is a very different story from the one I heard growing up. Is this really true? Jesus would die for me? My favorite verse is John 8:32. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I learned truth that year. My chains of fear, anger, and hate that had held me in bondage for so many years fell off. I latched on to Jesus, wanting to know more, feeling like I had been spiritually starved my whole life. Communication with my perpetrator was minimal, usually at a family wedding or funeral, and I had set personal boundaries in place to protect myself from him. He did not understand the depth of pain he had caused, nor did he understand how to have a real relationship with God. I went on with my life here thinking, this is how it will be until heaven. About two years ago, at a family birthday party, I initiated a conversation with my perpetrator, my brother. And during that conversation, God allowed me to see that he has been working in my brother's life. He told me things that to me seemed foreign, even impossible to be coming out of his mouth, like prayer, his church, the Lord. He also told me that he had a couple of other things to say to me, and when I was ready to hear them, just let him know. I came away from the conversation confused and shaken. Over the last 19 years, I have prayed, occasionally, that God would work in my brother's life. It was a rather flippant prayer, more out of obligation, because God tells us to pray for our enemies. I never once thought what it would mean for me if God actually did start working in his life. After our conversation two years ago, I decided that I didn't like it that God was working and it would be nice if he stopped. <laughs> because I like my life the way it is. It does not include my brother. I have a full life and this unexpected change is very uncomfortable. Fast forward to this past June. My husband and I had a family event to attend on his side of the family, which was in the same city my brother lives in. On a whim, I texted him asking if he was going to be in town that weekend, and if so, could we get together because I was ready to hear whatever it was he wanted to say to me. I was not prepared for what he said when we got together. It was about 26 years ago that Louise confronted me about the abuse that had gone on so many years ago. I cannot remember or describe all the many and various thoughts that raced through my mind at the moment. But I do clearly remember two things. One, God was beginning to deal with past, unconfessed, hidden sin in my life. And two, I could either fight him or bow to him. I realized immediately that fighting against God would only make things worse. So right from the start, I acknowledged my guilt and my responsibility. Proverbs 28:13 says, "He who covers his sin will not prosper, 
but whosoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. I'll not go into the turmoil and the ramifications of the next many years, but needless to say, there have been serious consequences in our lives for which I take full responsibility. This past June, I told Louise and Andy how sorry I was, and if I could change the past, I would do it in a heartbeat. But I could change the future in an attempt to win her back as a sister and work towards reconciliation. If that meant standing up in front of her church with her, I was willing to do that. Should I be forgiven or even offered a relationship with my sister for what I did? Humanly speaking, no. But I am thankful that God has forgiven me and has given my sister Louise the grace and the courage to, give, to forgive me as well. What am I supposed to do with that? What about the boundaries I have in place to protect myself from further harm and pain? What about the godly advice I've received over the years? Forgiveness does not mean trusting again. Forgiveness does not necessarily mean having a relationship with the offender, and so on. It was a lot to process. I went and talked with Pastor Jim about these latest developments in my story, and he said, I think you need to share this with our congregation. That was not encouraging. <laughs> it's not by chance that we are in the book of Joshua right now, and it's not by chance that the series is called Courage to Obey. God gives each of us assignments, and sometimes they are not easy. A few weeks ago, Pastor Tom talked about the commander of the Lord's army standing before Joshua with his sword drawn and telling Joshua that he is not on Joshua's side, nor is he on the enemy's side. The question Tom put to us was, are we on God's side? I've asked myself that question a lot the last few weeks. Am I willing to take my boundaries, the good, godly advice that I've received, and put it to one side for now and let God, who is bigger than all of that, do something amazing? I've known for a long time that assuming my brother will be in heaven, then reconciliation will happen up there. But God has given me the chance at reconciliation here, now. Do I want it? Choosing to be on God's side means being willing to see my brother through the eyes of Christ, one of God's unique creations for whom Jesus died, just like he died for me. I choose God's side. Today, we are here not as perpetrator and victim, but as brother and sister, because our amazing God is doing the impossible. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord, forgive us for thinking that you are most clearly seen when life is clean, when everything proceeds according to our plans, <clears throat> when there's no sin or messiness or guilt or shame. Lord, we've missed some of the greatest work that you've done. God, I thank you that our sin is not too big for you. 
God, I thank you that in Lou's story, you have been at work in her life from the very beginning. God, I thank you that it was your truth that set her free. Lord, I thank you that you are rescuing God, a healing God, a loving God. Lord, there have been twists and turns, and it's been harder and more difficult than she could have ever imagined. Um, But Lord, you've done amazing things. And God, you will be glorified for all of eternity. Not because everything went perfectly, but because despite the sin and the pain, Lord God, you were at work. And so God, I thank you for that. Lord, I thank you for Peter. Lord, I thank you that you are just as clearly seen, uh, God, in his life. And Lord, I praise you that you are a God who forgives. Lord, which of us could stand before you if you held our sins against us? Lord God, you are gracious and compassionate. Lord, you sent your son to die for us while we were still sinners, while we were your enemies. Lord, you gave us grace. And so, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I pray that you would help through this testimony and through your word and through this time together today to open our eyes, all of us, that we may see that you are at work in the messiness of life. Lord God, please forgive us. I know that it doesn't excuse the things that we've done, but thank you for being bigger. Thank you for being stronger. Thank you for choosing to glorify yourself. Lord, you could have just thrown us all away. But instead, Lord, you chose to dig in and to fight. And so, God, we say thank you. For those who are here, uh, Lord God, who need to know your power and your grace and your love, would you right now speak to them in words that only the Spirit can say, that they might understand how dearly and desperately loved they are. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Partly we asked uh, Lou and Peter to share their story because God's grace is amazing. And we want to celebrate an amazing God. But it's in part because there may be some of you here today who this is your story. And what I want you to know is that no matter what you've heard, no matter what anyone's told you, no matter what your perpetrator may have caused you to think or feel, it is never, ever, ever your fault if you've gone through something like this. You did not bring it on. You did not encourage it. It was not because there was something wrong with you. And so we want you to know that there is freedom, there's healing, there's power, and there's grace. And that nothing that has been done to you is too great for God to work. And that whatever image you have of God, be it an angry God, an aloof God, a God who wants nothing to do with your situation, a God who didn't care, I'm telling you those are lies. God is the God who fights and brings healing. There will be more twists and turns. It will be messy. It is hard. The story's not over yet. But God will write the final chapter. 